0: If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. If you're in need of a Bible, raise your hands, and the folks who are serving us this morning will happily bring you one for use. Just raise your hands and keep them up there. Um, We've got one here in the middle as well. Actually, I'm going to pass that one down. And while we're passing out Bibles, everybody say hi to Dwight and (laughs) Yodit. Say hi to Lysandra. She doesn't want to be noticed, but say hi to Lysandra anyway. (laughs) Amen. Good to have these saints back worshiping with us for the holidays, or over the holidays here. Matthew chapter 2. When we think of Christmas, we often think of children. In fact, some of the old folks say Christmas is for the children. Uh, We can understand that feeling, can't we? We are, after all, celebrating the birth of a child. And we do make a big deal out of blessing our children with gifts as part of that celebration. So it's understandable if people come to think of Christmas as, quote, for the children. And it's not surprising if our Christmas celebrations then begin to be sort of calibrated, adjusted, Sanitize, because it's for the children. It all becomes rather rated G, doesn't it? But if the birth of the Son of God gives us reason to rejoice over our children, then his incarnation should lead us to celebrate not just our children, but all children. Not just all children whose parents celebrate Christmas. Not just all children who receive gifts. During the holidays, the incarnation of the son of God means at Christmas, we should especially think of those children in the harshest, most vulnerable, most life-threatening circumstances. We need a Christmas that reminds us of the child whom we celebrate that he was an asylum seeker a political refugee whose family was targeted for assassination. If our Christmas celebrations don't bring to mind such people, including children who are suffering in those circumstances, then we have snatched Christmas from its original uh, context and made it far too sanitized. The coming of the Son of God is good news for the refugee, the immigrant, the asylum seeker, or it is not a gospel that is about the true historical Jesus of Nazareth. If we can't preach our gospel and our Jesus to a dreamer and have them recognize their own lives in his story, then we are preaching the gospel and a Jesus other than the one we find in the Bible in Matthew 2. The Jesus of the Bible is a man of sorrows and acquainted with much grief. Isaiah tells us he is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but is one who, notice this, in every respect, has been tempted as we are. Hebrews four fifteen. He was treated as a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Psalm 22, verse 6. And the question is, how do these descriptions of our Lord play themselves out even at his birth? When we look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23, we're going to see three aspects of Jesus' early life. This is the last of four-part sermon series uh, under that title, Jesus' Early Life. And here we're going to see that Jesus and his family experienced three things. Number one, political asylum in Egypt. You see that in chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Political asylum in Egypt. Number two, attempted assassination in Bethlehem. Attempted assassination in Bethlehem, verses 16 to 18. And number three, housing insecurity in Israel. Housing insecurity in East Israel, verses 19 to to 23. Look with me at Matthew chapter 2 verses 13 to 23, which records for us this true account of Jesus' early life. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about the search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. If you're looking for one main point from this sermon, you might put it this way, that Jesus's early life and these experiences are part of what equips him to be our perfect great high priest. His suffering in this way, according to the writer of Hebrews, is preparatory. It prepares him to be the kind of priest between us and God who can identify with us in our weaknesses and so represent us before God in an understanding way. He's been touched with the kind of suffering that really does exist in the world. And the first thing that we see in this text is that Jesus in his early life lived a part of that life as a a political asylee. He's an asylum in Egypt. The text opens with Joseph in verse 13, warning a dream that King Herod is going to try to kill Jesus. You see there they leave under the cover of night and he takes Mary and he takes the, the infant Jesus and he makes his way across the, the Negev and across the desert down into Egypt where they might be saved. It's a round up the family to escape Herod in verses 14 and 15. Now when we think about the early life of Jesus, we, we normally think about two scenes. The first scene is the manger. Right? Everybody thinks about the baby in the stable or the manger with the wise men and the shepherds coming. And then in the second scene, we kind of teleport down about 12 years and we think about him at the temple. When his mom and dad accidentally leave him in Jerusalem and he's in the temple schooling the, the priests and the scribes and, and whatnot. And scholars are fond of telling us that we don't know a great deal about his, his sort of early life, the, the scenes in between. They mention that fact like it's a, an odd thing. But the reason we don't know much about Jesus' early life is because he spent part of it on the run seeking political asylum in Egypt. What is political asylum? Well, that's, that's when the one country gives protection to someone who's having to flee situations in their own native country. That's precisely what we're seeing in verses 13 and 14. The the king is going to kill Jesus. Joseph and family flee from that political attack, and they find safety for a moment in Egypt. Now think about it, especially those of us living in our own home country. How, How much do we really know about the lives of immigrant communities? D.C. is full of immigrant communities. How much do we even know about brothers and sisters in Christ who are first and second generation immigrants at ARC? Right now we have 175 members or so. How many would you think are immigrants? I counted through the directory. If I got it all right, there are 35. That's a full 20% of our membership, part of the family of God here are people who are here, yes, as the family of God, but this is not their birth home. How much do we know about their lives? We have people here, brothers and sisters in Christ, who have worshipped with us, who are literally political asylees, have come to this country fleeing the political persecution of their home countries. We we have an asylee who is a, a member of the church family. There are people here living the same experience that Christ lived as an infant here in Matthew chapter two. But might I suggest to you that the reason we don't know more about the experiences of immigrants and the experiences of, of asylees um, is that they're almost completely invisible to us until somebody wants to blame them for something. Even in the church, we can erase these people made in the image of God or treat their experience as insignificant. And I want to suggest to you that if we do that, we, we harm people and we impoverish our understanding of the gospel and Jesus. Our Lord is running for his life in these few verses, seeking the protection Not of his own people, but of a foreign people, a foreign land, a different culture. Now, Here's what I wonder. I wonder if we would see asylum seekers differently today if we remember that Joseph showed up in Egypt with Mary and Jesus seeking asylum. You won't draw a straight line from that question to any particular policy. I'm trying to draw a straight line from that question to our hearts. I wonder if we would see differently. I wonder if our advocacy for asylum seekers might be different if we remember that one of the few things we know about our Lord's earthly life is that he and his family were, in fact, political refugees seeking asylum in Egypt. This isn't in the Bible for nothing. It isn't here to be a sort of footnote that we normally overlook when we talk about the early life of Jesus. is here for our instruction. It's here for our formation. It's here for our shaping as disciples. So how should this impact our understanding, not only of Jesus, but our understanding of life today? How might this influence our advocacy? I wonder if our comments about our country's Application process, for example, for asylum, and the requirements of proof that, that we ask for for asylum. I wonder if our comments about those things would be different if we stopped to think that the only proof that Joseph could give of fleeing political persecution was he had a dream. That's all he got. An angel of the Lord comes to him in a dream and warns him and says, get up and get out because here comes Herod. I wonder if that should shape how we think about our own requirements. Would we want our Savior to face the same asylum requirements that people face today? Would we want our children, were we the ones fleeing, to face the same asylum requirements and treatment that people face at our borders today? How would our views change if we applied the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you? I'm not giving you answers to these questions because I think it's for you to wrestle with Christ about these things. He has shaped us differently. We are in different stations of life and we have different responsibilities and opportunities. And I trust that Christ, by his Spirit, will know how to shape each and every one of us. But I do think we need to wrestle with these questions because God has given us his word and he's called us to bear witness according to his word. Remember, God fulfills his plans. in the the grit and grime of hard life. Uh, The things I've just been talking about are secondary applications to this text. Here's the primary application here. Matthew tells us that, that this flight into Egypt, verse 15, fulfills a prophecy about God's son. He quotes from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, out of Egypt I have called my son. We read Hosea 11 a moment ago. You'll remember in the immediate context, that's a, that's a text that's about Israel the nation, not about a, a, a private individual. Israel was called God's son as early as Exodus chapter 4 when God sent Moses to Pharaoh and, and said, "This Israel's my son. Let them go that they might worship me. And, and then literally the, or figuratively in 11.1, God renews that thing that Israel is my son. And he's going to call them out of Egypt. Now, you remember in Hosea 11, 1, almost the very next verse, um, God says there, I called them, but they did not come to me. And so it's a text that's about the nation Israel's disobedience. But Matthew picks up that text, applies it to Jesus, It helps us to understand that Jesus is the true Israel. He is the true son of God who who does indeed come, who obeys all that God requires. So much so that Jesus' personal life is fulfilling the sort of prophecy of Israel's national life. Israel's exodus out of Egypt is a commercial for the coming of the son of God out of Egypt so Matthew in his own way is telling us that everything that's prophesied of Israel, everything that Israel was meant to fulfill actually finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the unique son of God. So what? What do we make of this? In a broken world, A world broken by sin and depravity. It's important, beloved, to remember that all the brokenness in the world cannot stop God's plan to save even when that brokenness and that depravity is aimed directly at the Savior as is Herod's attempt to kill Jesus as a child, even when it's aimed directly at the Savior at his most vulnerable time as a toddler, unable to defend for himself, it only fulfills what God has planned to do all along. Having to run to Egypt was no surprise to God. He put it in Hosea centuries before. Calling him out of that state as a political refugee was not no plan B for God. He was working that all along. And so the plans of madmen who would be kings are still serving the plans of God who is indeed king of kings. Part of what I love about Mabuso's testimony is that it illustrates for us, doesn't it? That our circumstances don't define us. Not in God's sight. They they don't determine us. They don't determine our future. They're real. They're hard. They're gritty. They may not be as we have planned, but God is in sovereign control at all times. And he's at work to make himself known and to make for himself a people. Jesus was a political asylee. He faced that, that hard life. But also, number two, notice he, he had to face an attempted assassination in Bethlehem. Look there in verses 16 and 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Verse 16 zooms the, the camera in on Herod again, tells us his emotional state he 's gone from being disturbed, uh, just a few verses earlier to being feeling tricked and betrayed by the wise men who, in verse 12, go home a different way instead of coming back to him and telling him where Jesus is. And that sends him into a murderous rage. And so he issues this order to protect his power. Verse 16, he issues a decree that all the male children, two years old and younger, are to be put to death in Bethlehem and the surrounding region. He launches a plan of infanticide, of male genocide in Bethlehem in an effort to kill the Messiah. Now there are some scholars and historians who debate whether or not this actually happened. The reason they have that debate is because Herod is, is one figure from antiquity about whom we know more than any other figure. We know more about Herod than we do about Jesus. We know more about Herod than we do about any other figure in that time, mainly because of the writing of the Jewish historian Josephus. Josephus gives us copious amounts about Herod. But Josephus doesn't record what is called here the the martyr or the slaughter of the innocents. In all of his writing about, about Herod, Josephus doesn't say anything about this, and so some scholars then want to argue that this probably didn't happen. I think it happened, and I think it's a good explanation for why Josephus, Josephus doesn't tell us about it. I think this is entirely consistent with Herod's character, and I think it's entirely true since the, the Bible writers recorded it. What do we know about Herod? Well, we know he's a very paranoid man. You would be too if you had 10 wives. He had 10 wives. You got to keep looking around. You got 10 wives. He had 10 wives, and he had sons with all of them. Now, these sons were scheming for the throne, so much so that they were even trying to poison one another. It was so bad that Herod actually killed three of his sons for treason. Now, if this man would kill his own sons, three of them, you know he would kill unknown children in the countryside somewhere. But not only did Herod kill his sons, Herod also killed his favorite wife. And if that wasn't enough, he killed her mama too. He killed a high priest. He killed several of his uncles. He killed several of his cousins. It was so bad that Augustus Caesar said of Herod, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son." In 4 BC, about the time of this incident in Matthew chapter 2, Herod is old and dying. He knows he won't be, he wasn't loved as a ruler. And so he knows he won't be missed. But he doesn't want people dancing on his grave. He don't want people rejoicing that he's dead. So Josephus tells this story about him asking his sister to come to him and asking his sister to round up all the Jewish religious leaders uh, in Jerusalem and in the area, about 400 men, and to bring them to the Hippodrome, a stadium that he had built. Because he had plans to put them to death. And when his sister said, why, why would you do this? He said, basically, I want all of Israel crying at my funeral. I'm going to give them something to cry about. This is the Herod that we're talking about. And this is why I think Josephus doesn't record the incident in Bethlehem because he has so much other material to record. Scholars think that in Bethlehem, about this time, there were maybe 1,200 people living there and in that region. They figure that, just due to sort of actuary stuff, they figure that there were probably 25 or 30 children uh, under the age of two about that time, half of them being male, 12 to 15. So relative to what he was going to do, for example, with the priests, with hundreds of people, this would have been in comparison small, 12 to 15 boys put to death there. But that doesn't make it less tragic. I think it just goes away in helping to explain why Josephus didn't record it. I think it's true. I think it happened. I think Herod was entirely capable of this kind of evil. We have every reason to believe the Bible. But this is more than a debated historical event. Matthew records his history like he does all the other history because it has theological significance. Matthew explains the, the martyrdom of these children. Isn't it interesting that at Christmas, the first martyrs are children? He records the martyrdom of these children by calling it the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31 verse 15 which he quotes in verse 18. Look there again. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. It's an interesting quotation. Jeremiah chapter 31 is all about Israel's sorrow in exile being turned into joy as the Lord brings them back to himself and brings them back to their land. I encourage you to read the chapter this afternoon. It is a grace-soaked, joy-filled chapter, as Jeremiah pictures the exiles coming back. Verse 15, which Matthew quotes, really sticks out like a sore thumb. It is there all by itself without any real connection to the first 14 verses. And then verses 16 to 31 or 16 to the end of the chapter kind of picks up again with this theme of God's salvation. It's in Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 34 that we get one of those great passages predicting the new covenant where God will write his law on the hearts of his people. And so verse 15 in Jeremiah 31, which Matthew quotes, is just sticking there all by itself out of place. It's in Jeremiah 31, 31 and 34. Jesus has in mind the Last Supper. When he gives us the the supper and says, This is my blood shed for you, and this is my body broken for you, this is the new covenant. So when Matthew quotes this verse, he not only brings to mind the tremendous suffering of infanticide, he puts it in a particular theological context that his Jewish readers would have understood. He puts it in the context of the coming salvation that God had promised through a new covenant. Those would have known their Bibles would have been to sort of look at this verse with all of its weeping. But then look also to that chapter with all of its redemption, with all of its hope, with all of its promise. The children are slaughtered, but the Savior is coming. It's the same pattern we see in the Exodus where Pharaoh decrees that all the children should be put to death, but one child escapes, Moses, who becomes a a deliverer. We see that same Exodus pattern being played out here in Matthew chapter two where these children in Bethlehem are, are put to death, but there's one who escapes who will be the savior of the whole world. 30 years later, the state under Pontius Pilate, will kill Jesus. But it will be the case of the perfectly innocent child giving his life to save all who believe. So even the martyrdom of these innocent children foretell the sacrifice of Christ for our redemption. What does this mean for us? Well, I think Protestant Christians, we need to rewrite our Christmas traditions. Esau McCauley, a professor up at Wheaton College, uh, wrote on this very passage in the New York Times a couple days ago. Incidentally, today in the Eastern Orthodox Church and in high church traditions would be the day for the Feast of the Innocents, December 29, where they commemorate this very passage of Scripture. Esau writes this, We live in a world in which political leaders are willing to sacrifice the lives of the innocent on the altar of power. We are forced to recall that this is a world with families on the run, where the weeping of mothers is often not enough to win mercy for their children. More than anything, the story of the innocents calls upon us to consider the moral cost of the perpetual battle for power in which the poor tend to have the highest casualty rate. This is the world we still live in. It's not like there are Bible times and our times. We are living in Bible times. We're living in the last days. We're living in the corruption of the world's systems and we're living in a time of the abuse of power and the plundering of the innocent. And not just in immigration. We're living in a country who has used its power to sanction the murder of children in the womb by the millions. Because this is our world. We need to rewrite our traditions. We need to retell the Christmas story in its grit and its grime. And we need to tell it in such a way that people who are grieving feel overwhelmingly welcomed. It should not be an odd thing for people to experience grief at Christmas. A loss of a child, loss of a parent, loss of a job, poor report following a doctor's visit. We're wrong if we take people suffering loss of loved ones and make them feel like they're party crashers if they're mourning. We're wrong if we leave them no place to mourn except in private without the comfort of the gospel community. Just as Rachel Rachel wept loudly and publicly in verse 18, we should invite, invite loud weeping and mourning in our celebration of the Savior's birth. It's the only way Christmas will be Christmas for those families. It's the only way they will be invited in to to share in the joy that comes is if they can also bring their grief. They can wear their sackcloth and their ashes. Christmas is for families that are being brutalized and broken and left behind. So we got to openly include loss and grief so that we might also make room for sober hope. I think there's something instructive about that one verse that Matthew quotes from Jeremiah 31. He could have put a blindfold over his eyes, thrown a dart at that chapter, and any other verse he hit would have been a joyful verse. But he picks out the one verse that that features suffering and weeping and death, and he he doesn't allude to any of the happy, joyful, hopeful verses around it. I I think that's instructive. I think that, that teaches us that we don't have to hurry up and make it all right. And we don't have to hurry up and get to verses that are more triumphalistic and and more joyful and, and more happy. Sometimes we just need to sit with life the way it really is. And we need to consider that a part of what it means to celebrate Christmas, to celebrate the Savior's birth. We know joy comes in the morning, but weeping does endure for a night. We have to endure the weeping to get to the joy. And sometimes joy ain't joy if you skip the weeping, beloved. If you don't process it. If you don't let yourself feel it. If you don't share it. Christmas is for those who weep. And churches, good gospel communities should be places that welcome the weeping and extend the hope of mourning. The coming morning. Jesus was a political refugee. Jesus was someone who faced attempted assassination. It's the third thing about our Lord's early life in this section. He also faced housing insecurity. He was very nearly homeless. Look at verses 19 to 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, The action in this last paragraph is carried along by two dreams. See that in verses 19 to 21, the the first dream returns Joseph back to the land of Israel. Then in verses 22 and 23, the second dream helps Joseph settle most specifically back in Nazareth. Really, when you think about the family movements in all of chapter 1 and chapter 2, what emerges is a picture of, of housing insecurity. Housing insecurity happens when people can't maintain a, a stable, adequate home because of several factors. In Joseph and Mary's case, there were political factors and, and, and the passes of, of laws like the census. Uh, but we might extend those factors to trouble paying rent or the mortgage, overcrowding, frequent moves, and so on. In the United States today, about 20 million households are are dealing with housing insecurity. And a lot of those persons, increasing numbers of those persons, are are college graduates who are couch surfing and other things with with other people. So this is not something that merely affects the the poor, it's it's something that affects the educated and and otherwise. Bring it closer to home, about 15% of Maryland residents are, are dealing with housing insecurity. About... 13% 13% of Virginia residents. Our own city boasts one of the highest per capita incomes in the country, but we have the highest per capita homeless rate in the country. Homelessness being the most severe form of housing insecurity. The Lord Jesus and his parents here in this text spent his early life moving from one place to the next. When we meet them in Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, they are living in Nazareth. It's a beautiful little scene. Joseph is betrothed to Mary. They are looking forward to that wedding day and thinking about what life will be like as husband and wife. The next thing they know, they're told that Mary is pregnant and, and Caesar passes a law that requires people to go back to their ancestral hometowns for the census. And so Joseph picks up his family and he goes to Bethlehem. It must have been the case that he hadn't lived in Bethlehem for a while and he doesn't have family there in Bethlehem anymore because basically when they get to Bethlehem, they have nowhere to stay. Showing hospitality would have been not only a cultural, but definitely a family obligation. And they had no one to show him that. That's where Jesus is born. But before Jesus can walk and toddle, they have to run across the desert into Egypt, fleeing persecution from Herod. Now Joseph has another dream in chapter 2, verse 19, and they come back to the land of Israel. And before they can settle, Joseph has yet another dream, and they're redirected back to Nazareth. They've come kind of full circle, running for their lives, finding no room, making stables into birthplaces, crossing cultures, displaced by laws, and trying now to start over. They land in Nazareth. It's the same Nazareth that's mentioned in John chapter one, verse forty-six, where um, some folks come to um, what's his name, Nathaniel, and says, "Hey, we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth." And you remember what Nathaniel said? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Which lets you know that Nazareth was a first-century hood, right? And and Nathaniel is thinking about the hood the way people think about the hood today. And not only is he thinking about the hood that way, he's thinking about the people in the hood that way. Can okay, anything good come out of Nazareth? The thing was wrong in Jesus' day, and people are wrong today to think of people that way. So doesn't Jesus' early life of instability, doesn't it help to make sense of the The poor person's offering that Mary and Joseph give in Luke's gospel when they dedicate him in the temple? Two turtle doves, two pigeons. They were poor. Let this give some background to our Lord's comment as an adult when he begins his public ministry that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That wasn't something he was just saying. That was something he had lived. Doesn't this help to explain why Jesus showed so much compassion and love for the sick and the demon possessed, the poor, the blind, captives, women. And doesn't this give added context to parables like the one he told about the kingdom? Where the rich man invited other rich people to come to his feast, but they wouldn't. And so he sent the invitation out into the highways and the byways and bid the poor to come in. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus lived life on the margins of society in his earliest years. So he brought life to those margins and the people on those margins when his ministry began. To quote again from Esau Macaulay, the things that God cares about most do not take place in the centers of power. The truly vital events are happening in refugee camps, detention centers, slums, and prisons. The Christmas story is, not, is set not in a palace surrounded by dignitaries, but among the poor and humble whose lives are always subject to forfeit. It's a reminder that the church is not most truly herself when she courts power. The church finds her voice when she remembers that God has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble, as the gospel of Luke puts it. Jesus is a man of sorrows and acquainted with much grief. He is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. What does this mean for us? Those of you who feel like you're on the margins of society. Can you see that Jesus not only came for you, but also came as one of you? When you come to Jesus, you're not coming to Herod. You're not coming to someone full of entitlement, drunk with power, and eager to crush anybody who disagrees or disobeys him. No, you you come to one who was despised and rejected by men. You come to one whose life was counted as nothing. You come to one who couldn't find a stable place to live for the first couple of years of his life at least. In other words, you come to one who knows all about it. You, You come to one who understands. You come to one whom you can trust. So come to him. Pour out your heart to him. Pour out your complaint to him. Pour out your longings to him. Trust him with everything you cannot fix. And then trust him with everything else too. Give your life over to the Lord. He will not crush you. He will not bruise you. He will not treat you harshly. He will not reject you or ignore you. He will not leave you. He came into the world so that he would always be God with us. A merciful God who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses and doesn't just sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but who heals us eternally. You may be feeling all of the whips and lashes and broken places in your own life from a broken world that's cruel and violent. There is no refuge from that in the world. There are no safe places out in the world where we are free from suffering. It is God who is the tower. It is God who is the fortress. It is God who is the safe place. The righteous run into him and they are safe. So let me bid you, if you've never ran to Christ and sought shelter and safety in God, That's where you should go. And as you go, believe and expect that he will receive you and be merciful to you and heal you. That's why he's come. Every refugee, every immigrant, everyone fleeing the assassination of Satan finds a permanent, stable, loving home in the kingdom of God if they trust in Christ. And to those of you who have already trusted in Jesus, perhaps you're a person of faith like Joseph. And, and, and yet, you're experiencing the same kind of instability as Joseph. I mean, consider Joseph. Every time Joseph has a dream, his life and his family get uprooted. Dream number one, the angel says, chapter 1, 20 to 25, marry, marry before you planned. Dream number two, the angel comes back. Chapter two, verses 13 and 14 says, go to Egypt, quick. Dream number three, go back to Israel since Herod is dead. Dream number four, don't don't settle up there. Go down to Nazareth and settle down. I mean, if I was Joseph, I would be afraid to go to sleep. (laughs) And if I was Mary, I'd wake that rascal up every time he kicked in his sleep. Never get no REM sleep, (laughs) And even though Joseph believed and trusted in God, his life was marked by danger and trouble. Powerful supernatural experiences do not excuse us from a hard life of following Jesus. The two can go together. You can have tremendous encounters with God and tremendous troubles in the world. But suffering hard things did not mean that, quote, things have gone wrong. Suffering hard things does not mean that things are out of control. If we think that way, we've been infected with a form of prosperity gospel. The truth is, sometimes we suffer because we're righteous, God is very much in control. God is fulfilling His promises and His word. Jesus ends up in a hood called Nazareth, but that wasn't because they were poor and on hard times. That was because God had determined centuries before that His Savior would be called a Nazarene. He has appointed the places of our habitation, says Acts 17. And so if you're here among the righteous who trust in Christ, but life is hard right now, you don't have to minimize that life is hard. You don't have to downplay that. You don't have to ignore that. Please don't do that. It would be to your greater hurt. But at the same time, praise God that we have a savior who knows all about it. Praise God that he too suffered those things to become our great high priest. What he offers is not a pain-free, problem-free life. What he offers is gentleness, mercy, and above all, to be with us and never leave us or forsake us. The presence of Christ in the midst of pain is a far better reward than a pain-free life without Christ. Take the pain with Jesus. And you'll find that it's better than the ease without Jesus. And to do that, beloved, is going to require faith. The kind of faith that Joseph has that follows God wherever he bids. So let's wrap this up. Jesus was a dreamer. Were he born today in the United States or even 10 years ago in the United States? He might have been a DACA recipient, brought here as a toddler, through no effort of his own, in the custody of parents with enough responsibility to free, to flee, excuse me, the threats of Herod. He was a refugee seeking political asylum. He was a homeless child in the world he created. If our Christmas stories don't tell this version of Jesus's life, then our Christmas story is more traditional than biblical. There's a very good chance that if we're repeating sanitized tradition, rather than the rough story of the Bible, then the coming of the son of God will not sound like good news to people who are most marginalized today. It'll sound like rather nice news for people who already have it nice. Christmas is for the children. It's especially for the children innocently killed, forced to flee, and growing up in hoods facing prejudices in the world. At least that's the Christmas of the Bible. Let's go tell it on the mountain. Let's pray together.